Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Renata Quintini and Roseanne Winsack of Renegade Partners, a firm that focuses on helping entrepreneurs at what they call the supercritical stage. Roseanne and Renata bring an exceptional history of experiences from firms such as IVP, Lux, Felicis, and Canaan Partners. In this episode, we discuss operating an emerging fund like a startup, building a firm ethos, how they think about stage investing, and their general advice to emerging managers on fundraising from LPs. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni has helped well over 100 venture firms at all sizes improve their investment decision-making by using actionable, granular economic and legal data extracted from actual deal documents. By using Omni, fund managers can be much more confident in their ownership rights and economics and better serve all of their constituents. As somebody that loves working with emerging managers and understands the difficulty of scaling a firm, I'm so excited to see that Omni's solution helps firms become much more institutional through the use of real actionable data that acts as the single source of truth for their portfolios. This in turn translates to more streamlined fundraising processes as LPs can confidently assess the performance of existing portfolios. Check out their solutions at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Hey, Renata and Roseanne, it's so great to have you both on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and it's so exciting for me to have you both on the show, given your unique blend of experiences. And before we get into the story of Renegade and your views on building a great firm, I want to first maybe start off with your backgrounds. And Renata, maybe we start off with your entree into venture capital. So it's a a very non-obvious path into venture. Uh, I'm actually from Brazil, and a long time ago, I was a practicing lawyer for venture capitalists in Brazil when the internet was just starting. And that brought me to Stanford to get a specialization in law, science, and technology. And during that program, I looked up and I said, wow, you know, lawyers spend so much time thinking about what can go wrong. And I'm a person that's like this utmost optimist. And I like to think about what can go right. Uh, And if I could wave a magic wand, I'd love to become my client. So how do I do that? And that was uh, 2004. And it was a pursuit of, okay, how does a Brazilian female lawyer move into venture capital? Uh, And it was a journey and a lot of luck along the way. Uh, After my Stanford MBA, I actually ended up joining the Stanford Endowment as an LP, investing in venture funds. And it was an amazing time because it was the supernova of new fund formation and this uh, new moment for founders around product market fit. And today, established firms like Andreessen Felices, Floodgate, and, and so on and so forth, they were just starting their institutional practices back then. And I had the, the pleasure to, to see that emerge and, and look at that from the investor vantage point of like, okay, what is this thing and why does the world need another venture capital firm. And from there, I went to Felicis. And then when I joined, it was the three of us investing in an assistant. And it was a fantastic journey uh, of not only investing fantastic companies and founders, but also building a firm from scratch. And, you know, that was uh, a niche that I had to scratch again. And I didn't know how much I loved it, <laughs> risk-taking and building. And that brought me to Renegade. Uh, and, you know, at Felicis, I uh, was there for six years, almost seven. And uh, at the end of 2016, when I was on maternity leave, the 
Lust Capital team, who I've known since Stanford days. Josh Wolf jokes that he wanted to work for me back in the day. Said, you know, we just closed a $400 million fund. We've been on boards together. Uh, you've been investing in these uh, really interesting companies that have been redefining not only traditional industries like Dollar Shave Club and Wobby Parker and so forth, but also these frontier uh, technologies with Planet and Cruise and so on and so forth. So why don't you come join us? And I was fascinated by this opportunity to think about large, big, humanity transforming markets, but bringing my expertise of uh, understanding the end consumer, understanding company scaling. Um, and it was a fantastic, fun adventure, but it was a bittersweet moment to have actually, you know, choose to change. And then fast forward to the uh, beginning of 2019, another bittersweet moment in the sense of, wow, you know, and Roseanne, I'll let Roseanne talk about how we know each other and how this all started. But like, we really had the entrepreneur itch and turning a page to start a new one and writing a new story uh, brought, brought me to found Renegade with Roseanne and something that once we saw this opportunity, we're so excited and we had to go build something new. That's great. And I have a lot of questions in how the two of you came together, given your experiences. But maybe Roseanne, we'll start with, you know, your entree into venture. I have a kind of strange path into venture as well. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I always like to say that Renata is from Latin America and I'm from middle America. I moved out here to go to college. Um, I was always like a dorky kid. You should have seen me in like middle and high school. Um, I'd always like been like really like into the internet and my mom was actually from the Bay Area and uh, I had an uncle that had a venture back company back in the 70s. And so like there was always a lot of tech growing up and I never really thought of, thought of it as a career. But so I moved out here to go to Berkeley uh, and actually I was a chemistry undergrad and, and that's where like the name Supercritical comes from and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but I was, was a chemistry undergrad and I actually started a biophysics PhD also at Berkeley. And about three years in I realized I like thinking about science and talking about science, but I don't like really like doing science. Like the work that I did was just very narrow and esoteric and like, you know, I actually lived in San Francisco, like I lived in the city at that time and you know, this is, you know, post the bubble bursting and like text really starting to come back. And also like for the first time there were like companies in the city, right? Like Twitter and Yelp and things like that. And I just like saw all this excitement going on around me and I was like stuck in this lab. I ended up dropping out of my PhD to start a company that made Facebook apps and like the crazy Facebook app days, which was very fun until it wasn't like basically, you know, Facebook like shut everybody down. Like they just shut off all of our like marketing channels. Uh, it was like also kind of around like September 2008. And I remember like we were like, you know, three like fresh out of school kids and our parents being like, uh, you need to get jobs. And so I went to <laughs> an enterprise software company that was um, eventually acquired by Illumina. And it was actually one of our investors that kind of asked me once like off. It was a very off the cuff comment like, oh, like, what are you thinking about? Like, have you ever thought about venture? And I remember going home and like reading everything I could because like I had had, you know, like when I had. Um, my company, like I had pitched VCs and I knew VCs, but I had never really like thought about it as a career. And frankly, like I had never seen anybody that looked like me that was a VC, right? Like back then, this is like 2009, right? Like there weren't a lot of associates. Like I, I never thought about the business model or, or, you know, where the money came from or what the job was like. And I just remember going home and reading everything I could and being like, oh my God, this is my dream job because it's all the things that I love about academia, right? Like the mental models and doing experiments 
But instead of pipetting, I get to talk to people, right? So it's just like a better fit for my personality. And and again, like I've always just like deeply loved technology. And and one thing that I just love about it is like it has that same like complexity and nuance and discoverability like science, but like you see the impact in our day-to-day lives, right? And like we see how it actually, you know, affects the people that we care about. And, and to me, that was really important. Um, so I went to business school, like knowing I wanted to do venture. I joined Canaan coming out of business school, which was awesome, you know, doing like seed and series A. And then a couple of years in IVP approached me asking if I had ever thought about growth. And I hadn't because I was never a banker. I was like the worst banker at IVP, like kind of proudly. But it was awesome. Like I got this like front row seat to watch the growth market like really change. Right. I joined IVP at the beginning of 2015. And, you know, that summer, like all of the hedge funds and mutual funds were, you know, starting to like dabble in late stage and everybody wanted a billion pre and, you know, we're seeing so many deals and it was just this amazing education. But for me, uh, you know, in my heart of hearts, like I'm an early stage person. I was kind of like playing growth investor in some ways, right? Like, um, you know, I, I think that stuff is so interesting and I love like being able to think about like, you know, how companies get to be big public companies, but like, I also just love venture risk. Renata and I have known each other for like eight or nine years at this point. Unfortunately, we don't have like a cute, like, like a meet cute the first time we met story. Uh, someday we'll make one up. But we were at one of these dinners, like, in 2018, like kind of spring of 2018. And it was like one of those dinners where like, every, you know, we're sitting at our end of the table. It's like a bunch of VCs and we're all like sitting and talking and everyone's like, well, if I started my firm, I would do this. If I started my own firm, right? Like, you know, you know, those types of like conversations are like fishing stories. And I just remember like at the end, like going up to Renata and being like, maybe we should actually talk about this, like with like less wine because she was kind of finishing my sentences and it was really clear that we were kind of thinking about the world in the same way. And, you know, for me, it wasn't that I was like, oh my God, I like, you know, I I didn't start, I didn't like decide to go into venture because I like dreamed about starting a venture firm. But just the longer that I was in venture, I just saw that there was like such an amazing opportunity if you could start from scratch, right? And build a venture firm today that I just like, as soon as I started thinking about it, I couldn't stop. And then especially, you know, when Renata and I kind of started kicking it around, it was just clear that like, there was just so much opportunity and I was like so excited about that. And, you know, to me, it felt like, it just like, you couldn't pass it up, right? It was, it was way too exciting. Let's go a, a level deeper actually. And I always find these stories fascinating. And I do want to go back to the notion of supercritical in a moment and what that actually means. But as you think back on those original discussions where you felt, hey, we're kindred spirits, we really have an intentional and aligned view of what we want to build in a firm, I always like to talk about what was that framework? What was the ethos that you wanted to create around an organization? What exactly about that led to the, even the name Renegade? I think the big realization for us, or one of the inspirations was like this realization that the way companies are built has evolved so much. What a tech company looks like and what a tech company can achieve has changed so much. And when we look at uh, the venture model, venture firms, venture, venture adage, it's been in place for 30, 40 years. We really wanted to take a step back and said, okay, what if we started a venture company a venture firm that worked like a company, something that we were excited to back, right? Like the same way that we look at the companies we invest in, 
Uh, and that got us so excited. Uh, and we'll talk about more about what those principles are. Uh, but then the definition of renegade that really stuck with us is renounce convention. And in a way, it's us just like, okay, let's take the experiences of everything that we've done in our venture careers. And we've had the, the pleasure to be at amazing firms and work with amazing people and founders. And let's take the stuff that is awesome, but also let's shed the stuff we don't think fits anymore. Let's go to a blank slate and renounce convention. convention. We weren't smart enough to come up with this name on our, by ourselves. Uh, we do have a friend who's a professional <laughs> and suggested this name for us. And once we saw it, we could not let it go. And it very much inspires us. And also, if you think about it, entrepreneurs are renegades, right? And it's a sentiment that we share and something we can all kind of rally behind. The other part of the equation is the ethos of the firm that you're building. And I do remember in the early conversations we had, you were very intentional on the type of firm you wanted to build and what it actually stands for. Maybe you can walk us through what that thought process was like and what is it that Renegade stands for? Yeah, as Renata mentioned, you know, we we wanted to build a firm that looks like a company that we'd want to invest in. And to Renata's earlier point, like the world has changed so much, what a tech company is has changed so much, like how big they can be, the impact that they can have, who is starting them, right? All of these things look different and your average venture firm looks the same as it did in the 90s. And the weirdest thing to us, or like the biggest kind of head scratcher opportunity was this idea that like, there's kind of this recipe for venture backed companies, right? There's all these things that we tell our companies to do, like how they structure their teams, how they incentivize people, how the investments that they make. And as VCs, like that's our job that we like go tell companies to do this. And then we don't do it in our own business. And like, we just think that's dumb, right? And and not because it's like, you know, I'm not saying that it's hypocritical. I'm just saying that it's like, we see that this recipe is like an amazing formula to start from zero and go against big incumbents. So like, why wouldn't we use it? Right. And so, you know, I, I mentioned that we started talking about this in spring of 2018. And like, so really, like we spent a ton of time kind of figuring out like what we would want to do and what we would want to build before we left our firms. And it wasn't because we were like, you know, using our firms as option value. We were, it was because like, you know, we had these amazing spots at phenomenal places and we weren't just going to like it. This wasn't, you know, done on a whim. It was really like we were like we're both like extremely competitive and like want to win. And we wouldn't do this if we didn't think that like, you know, we could have like steeper trajectories than the amazing trajectories that we had. You know, as we kind of, you know, think about like, what does that mean? Like, what is this like vent firm that looks like a company? Like, what? how do we think about that, right? Like, you know, part of that is the way that we like incentivize people, right? Like we think of, about comping against, you know, we hire executives that come from companies. Like that's another kind of one of the, the tenants is like, you know, at, at our, we tell our companies to build these like very rich, like high powered executive teams across multiple you know, multiple line, like, you know, business areas. And, you know, we're doing the same, like, our, our, we have this incredible operating partner, we'll, we'll dig into her, but like, right, like, we're, we wanted to hire execs that our companies would want to hire, right. And so we have to comp them against, you know, what a Facebook pays or what a, you know, what the upside is at joining like a high growth company. Um, you know, we think a lot about using technology as like a, you know, part of our foundation and culture to like, you know, allow us to outcompete to just, be like brutally honest here, like, you know, a lot of the way that a lot of venture firms are set up right now is just, you know, it's really optimizing for AUM and fee stream. And even I was at dinner with a friend last night who was like 
parroting this back to me. And I'm like, these are the principles that we started our, our firm on, uh, you know, a friend at, a, at an established firm. And, you know, it's because like in our companies, like we tell our, we tell our CEOs, like take a below market salary and you're going to get rich on your equity, right? Like save every dollar you can to invest in the business. And like, we do the same thing, right? Like Renata and I make minimum wage, right? And frankly, the only reason that we make minimum wage is because like we had to make something in order to get our health insurance. And so like, Right. Like we're like hawks about this, that we like every dollar of management fee goes into our business. Right. Like and we see that as a massive opportunity because, you know, as in the average venture firm, like, you know, there's this fee stream that gets swept at the end of the year for all the GPs and taking everybody's compensation away from them to invest in their business is a very difficult thing to do. But it's something that we can do because we're starting from like starting at day one. We have that mentality. And frankly, like Renata and I will always be salaried. Right. Like we want to like we want to create the incentives that like we are highly incentivized to invest in our business because that means that like we're going to be able to like put more into our business than you know a lot of folks that have a lot more AUM than we do um and so really like we just try to think about like what are the things our companies do that allow them to like execute in ways that the incumbents can't and how can we apply that to our own business you touched on something that i think is really interesting and that a lot of people assume that vcs that are emerging managers do it for the money and that it's a lucrative <laughs> opportunity day one. And the reality is, you know, a lot of folks are taking the route you are, which is, you know, create a platform, hire the right people, and be long-term greedy and short-term focused. But the other part that I don't think a lot of people necessarily understand is that not only are you taking minimum wage, you're also investing in your own fund. And so you're actually cash flow negative in the first yep. few years. Yep. <laughs> it does require great alignment and how you think about it as a partnership and what you're going to do, be consistent. And you mentioned earlier in this conversation, you've known each other for eight or nine years. You've been talking about this for two years. When people are getting together as a partnership, partnership dynamics are such a key thing to nail. And it's a difficult thing. We've seen firms in the past fail because either generational succession hasn't been good, partner dissolution, partnership politics. What were the questions that you asked yourselves and maybe each other to fully feel comfortable that the two of you were a right fit for this particular organization? Yeah, I'm so glad that you're asking these questions because quite frankly, that was the area that we spent the majority of our time before starting Renegade. Uh, because we knew like our track records those are objective data points, right? It's very easy to be early in a conversation and show this is who I am as an investor and you have your reputation. Uh, and it's very easy to understand that. But we know that the biggest reason firms underperform, especially early firms, is really on the partnership dynamics and not being the most high-performing team they can be. And we wanted to make sure that, because we are betting on each other, we, we joke, that we got professionally married and it's an amazing marriage. And like, if you ask me what has been a surprise of this, I knew I was going to have an amazing relationship at Roseanne. It's above and beyond what I could have imagined. But because we put the work in advance, so we actually hired a coach, a coach that works with startups all the way from two people in a garage to companies that were going out IPOs. And his, his career has been understanding co-founder relationships and, 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 figuring out if they're functional or how to make them functional. I wanted to know, like, do do we complement each other in a way that a partnership deserves? So we did a lot of work ex ante asking the, 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 the hard questions around, 
economics, around incentives, around, okay, we're taking a risk on each other. How, how is even our financial ability to take the same risk, right? Because like no one wants to be one up in the other, right? And what does it mean? We're starting something. Okay, how long are we going to give this a world? Six months, 12 months, 18 months. What is success to you? What is failure to you? Everything from, okay, where is the physical office going to be? When that was <laughs> a, a question to the way that we handle difficult conversations. And the most important thing is, is what are you made of, right? What are your judgment factors? And do you believe in the same value systems? And it was very clear early on that Roseanne and I do. Because sometimes people would ask us, tell us about your biggest fight. The answer is really lame because it was over a slide. And I don't even remember who wanted what or who ended up being right. I mean, because <laughs> like this whole point of, okay, we're going to take minimum wage to actually hire this amazing person. That takes five seconds. I'm glad you touched on even using an outside person to help you with this. I've always told managers that I work with that are looking to partner to confront the really tough questions up front, no matter how uncomfortable they are, because they will come up at some point in the early days. And if you don't get that right, you know, I've seen so many firms fail because of those partnership dynamics. But then you've also built a team and you mentioned we want to build this as a company. What does that actually look like in practice, you know, within your staff? So our first hire was an is our operating partner. Her name is Susan Alban. She was the first GM of Uber Eats. And then she was VP of people at Zoom Pizza from like 30 to when she left, it was like 600 people. And so she's been through this like, you know, very fast growth, high team scaling. And her practice is really focused on how to build that infrastructure to prepare to scale. You know, Su I mean, Susan's incredible and she's such a massive boon to our business. <laughs> and especially having like a real operator inside of a venture firm who like, I mean, she, I mean, she's incredible. But one thing that was actually really interesting about it is like, I've known Susan for 10 years and Susan was actually a really close friend of mine. You know, as we were going through the process with Susan and, you know, we had other candidates for the role because we, you know, this was our, our you know, we, we had a, a point of view on this people partner from the beginning. You know, I, I didn't want to push like, you know, somebody who was a good friend of mine. And so making sure there was a lot of time for Susan and Renata to like really get to know each other and really, you know, really figure out if that like gel and fit was there. And, you know, I think as we as we build our team and as we think about our team, like, again, we think about this as like a company. It's all about like, how do we take things off our plates, right? Like the reason that we did all of the coaching and like the soul searching in the beginning is again, like, right? Like if you think about a seed stage company or like a very early company of two people, right? Like the biggest risk is, is team risk, right? Is like, are they gonna, are they gonna be able to work together? You know, we've really thought about like, how do we actually like continue to like add people so that we can be more and more effective. And frankly, like, you know, I think this, the the kind of true north that we had around like, you know, who are the execs that we would want in our companies and bringing them around our table, like Susan has up-leveled us so much, right? And like the way, I, I just feel like the way that we operate as a firm and then also, you know, as uh, from a portfolio support function is really amazing. And we're seeing that, right? Like, you know, we're investing in businesses that have venture firms around the table and have venture firms that have, you know, big, portfolio support operations and the fact that like Susan is so differentiated is so, you know, is so validating and exciting to us. But even, you know, we have a new CFO and just, you know, constantly like leveling up the people around the table who are able to like, you know, take something and be an owner and excel at it is just been such a massive boon to us kind of as founders. And, 
and really like always just looking for those people who can, who, you know, who are going to do everything better than we could. Um, and just that constant level up. As you talk about the level up, particularly related to the services you're providing portfolio companies, and I do want to touch on the notion of what a super critical stage actually means and how someone like Susan and the two of you drive value. Can you walk us through the investing thesis and then more importantly, how the team drives that type of value consistently to the founders? The two big questions that we spend time thinking about before quitting our jobs and jumping into the abyss of starting something new. Uh, you know, was one was really getting big alignment on the type of firm and this this notion of company that we spoke to you about. But then the other piece was answering that question, like, why does the world need another venture capital firm, right? Because if you build a beautiful house and you put it into a market that's not interesting, that house is not worth very much. So we really wanted to marry that idea of an amazing organization with an amazing opportunity. And when we took the big step back, what we realized by being an adventure for the past, for me, 13 years and Roseanne, uh, almost 10, scaling companies from a people standpoint has changed dramatically. Capital is abundant. The opportunity for tech companies is abundant. I mean, we have two companies that, you know, past 100 billion, uh, 100 billion valuation that w- that didn't exist, you know, five, 10 years ago and, and growing and the market cap of tech just keeps growing. And if actually one thing that we realize is we underestimated the potential for technology. So that is not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is how do you get the right people to deliver the right financial and organizational results? Right, because when we're investing in a company, we'll look at a financial plan. It's like, okay, you're three xing, four xing revenues, or what's your market opportunity? But then the layer down is like, okay, what's the team that's going to actually deliver that? And what what's the type of people that you need? What are the roles? And if you're actually three, four xing revenues, you're also sometimes two, three xing, four xing your team size in a year. So you go from knowing everybody, everybody fitting into a table to having two, three layers of management, people that have never managed people before, now having a team. And how do you get all of those things to come together and continue to run run at, at scape velocity, right? Because the opportunity is there, the market's there, and the investors are supporting you to do that. And we saw from our boards time and time again that the big outliers that we've invested in were the ones that were able to figure that stuff out and figure that stuff out early. You know, to go deeper into that, what we realized is, oh, wow, there's this function called chief people officer uh, that is very undersupplied because, you know, human resources have moved from a don't get me sued compliance function to like this big reporting to the CEO strategic organization that delivers strategic results. Um, And very few people actually know how to do that. And there's so many unicorns now that are still looking for for people to fill those seats. And we're like, okay, so how is a series... A company, B company, C company going to outcompete these big high growth companies to hire those interesting people. They can't, but we can. So why don't we build a purpose-built venture firm that brings in the expertise from the operational standpoint, but also understands these companies from an investing lens? Because there's something there, but they're not fully baked. And that's why also Rosanne and I coming together is very much on purpose. And I'll let her to talk about it. Yeah, Renata is totally right. So we were both kind of, we were both seeing the same thing in the market, right? And, you know, to Renata's point, like, 
you know, Renata mentioned also earlier, she was an LP at the Stanford Endowment, you know, when seed firms were becoming institutionalized, right? And that, you know, she had this insight that was like so key to kind of, you know, 2018 for us was that it's, you know, when there's the, there's these tectonic shifts in the market and it's, you know, it's not about the, the volume of capital, right? It's really about like when do entrepreneur needs change. When she was at Stanford, right, it was, you know, she was there 2007 to 10. And, you know, all of a sudden it was with like AWS and Facebook and mobile, like all this like, you know, standardization of platform. It now became 10x cheaper to start a company, right? Like I was that entrepreneur, right? Like now you could raise 500K and you had 12 months to figure it out, right? And at Stanford, it's like, oh, like we have the best, we have the best venture portfolio in the world, right? Like why can't my series A managers just come down market and do these deals? And the truth is, is it's like, it wasn't because like there wasn't capital to do those deals, right? The firms had plenty of capital, but like this new class of firms emerged, right? Because like what entrepreneurs had to do at that stage had really changed. Like now that like, it wasn't all about like who could raise enough money to like buy a rack of servers and have a lead time to actually like develop product. It was all about like, how do you iterate to find product market fit so quickly, right? And the firms that started that like were focused on helping entrepreneurs with those new sets of problems, those became the winners today. Right. Like that's first round. That's how, you know, Andreessen, right? Like with their market development team, right? Like how they started. That's Founders Fund. I'm a founder. You're a founder, right? Like that crop of, you know, new firms started at this time because there was a new entrepreneur need. And we we believe that the same thing is happening today, right? Like as Renata mentioned, like, you know, tech companies can be bigger than ever, right? And that's amazing, right? Like nobody, I like, I will bet money that no VC put it in their model that Shopify or Zoom were going to be $100 billion companies, right? Like what was Shopify's market cap when I went out? Like $3 billion? You know, I, I think the, the boon of COVID is that, you know, I think, again, like, as Renata mentioned, we've severely underestimated the TAM of technology. We've also like really shrunk, you know, we, we've sped up a bunch of um, adoption and distribution, you know, probably five or 10 years worth into this, you know, past nine months, hopefully not too many more, right? Like, so, you know, there's this ama- amazing opportunity for technology. And frankly, like, I think we're going to look back at this time as like a golden age of company formation. We can go on about that later. But like, you know, basically, like companies can be so much bigger. Also, to be a good venture outcome today, like you have to be really big, right? Like, A, like you used to be able to go out, like you used to be able to be a public company with $10 million revenue, right? Like now, if like, you can't even get out if you're a sub like a sub billion dollar market cap company. And like, really, like, you know, the vast, vast majority of volume today goes through the ETFs and indices, right? And those are weighted towards big names, right? So like, in order to be a really, really great venture outcome, in order to be a Shopify or a Zoom or a Snowflake, right? Like you have to be, you know, tens of billions of dollars of market cap, not hundreds of millions of dollars of market cap, right? So we're playing a different game today, right? And that's the change, right? So like what we were seeing, like to Renata's point around people is that like, you know, there was such great, like, you know, at the seed and series A, such great help around the table, building go-to-market, figuring out product market fit. And at the growth stage, there was all this great help around, like, how do you prepare to go public? How do you build that board? How do you, like, how do you get acquired as a premium asset, right? But in the middle, like, we really saw that, like, there was this new thing around, like, you know, preparing to scale, building the org to scale. And it's not a recruiting problem, right? It's not about putting butts in the seats. It's like, how do you design the seats that the butts go into, right? To make sure that they're really effective and that they stay. Right? How do you build these iconic companies that people join and stay out for a long time and like, you know, where employees have amazing outcomes? Right? Like how do you actually like structure compensation so that like, you know, the wealth is shared among, you know, among the employee base and it's a place that people are proud to come from? We saw like those those issues just getting magnified with the way that the, you know, the financing environment and frankly the world is today. 
and that there was this new entrepreneur need and that that was something that we could go after, right? Because it's not that there's like, the world doesn't need another venture firm because there's not enough money for companies, right? Like there's tons of money for companies, but it's it's that entrepreneur needs have changed. And, and so we call this stage the super critical stage. And um, it's a nod to my like, you know, obsession with chemistry because, you know, at certain temperatures and pressures matters neither liquid nor gas. It's kind of both. It's called a supercritical fluid. It's this like actually like more of like a quantum superposition, but like whatever, right? But it has like some of the features of a gas and some of the features of a liquid, but it's like neither and but both at the same time, right? And like, I feel like these companies are this way, right? Like, it's so how we think about supercritical is like, there's a product in market, there's early revenue, there's some customer love, things are working, but like, you can't put it in a model yet, right? And and it's also like generally like the organizations are really raw, right? Like as you know, to Renata's point, like everybody, like you know, like there maybe there, there's no layers of management. CEO knows everybody's name still, right? Like you know, like there's just so much work to be done at this time, like when things start working, right? Like to really be successful when you inflect. And one of the things I also love about this problem is like the most successful companies feel it the most like acutely. Right. Because like if you ha- like when you have this incredible product market fit and you start flying off the shelves and really scaling it, like that's when you feel the stress on the organization. And so it's also just like such a fun project to work through your companies with or work through with uh, work with your companies through because, right, like that's how they like unlock and achieve, you know, all these levels of success. Like um, I led our masterclass investment. I still sit on the board there. And I remember, you know, at the Series C, it was 40 people. And a year later at the D, it was 120. And David saying like, oh my God, I added two more masterclasses last year. There's a lot to unpack there. And I'm in complete agreement in the size of the opportunity within technology. And I sent a tweet out uh, just last week where back in 2004, the biggest publicly traded technology company was Microsoft at $350 billion today. Over $10 trillion in market cap value of technology companies. And you mentioned the Shopify's and the Zooms and, of course, Airbnb looking to go public. So we're seeing these massive, massive outliers that are now in place because technology is ubiquitous. We are also seeing more money going to companies, more money going into private funds. And it really brings the the question that I have, and, and I love the notion of you're a company serving companies. But it also speaks to companies need to show differentiation. There needs to be a moat. And as you look at the moat that you're building, there is other capital looking at the companies that you're investing in. How do you build your own moat? You mentioned the team, you know, the structure. Is there something more to that in thinking about how an emerging manager can build moat to ensure that you know, you can win deals and you can source deals at a very high level. Yeah, so I think for us, the, the point of, you know, an investor needs to have a point of view and it, it should be a differentiated point of view on what creates value. And for us, really honing in on this super critical stage notion is the foundation of our firm and what is guiding the team that we built, the type of companies we invest in. And, and that one becomes a flywheel. Right. And like Roseanne mentioned, is is a stage of life of a company is not a letter. Uh, we actually have, uh, you know, investments in the super critical in super critical companies that are series A, series B, series C. So the letters really don't matter for us. It's re- really more what is top of mind for you as a founder and, and as an organization, because that's when we know we're going to compete beyond just capital, because if it's just capital for capital, brand name for brand name, you bring very little to the table. It makes it very hard to win. But if you're actually saying, 
I'm bringing something that is very top of mind. Like the best part of our job, because like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, building something from scratch is exciting, but it, you know, it also has building a brand, right? Like you're you're creating things that don't exist, and you have to to educate. And you know, coming from places with established brands, established platforms, we we see the difference that that <laughs> lack of gravity makes. So, talking to founders, and you go and like, okay, so you know this is probably what you're going through. You're spending more than 50% of your time thinking about your organization or about recruiting or about, you know, maybe having too many direct reports. You're seeing your product being like adopted really, really quickly and that it's exciting, but also you're, you know, wondering, okay, it's almost that rocket launch moment where the gravity is pulling you down that either goes or it, it brings you back to earth, right? And the heads just bob. And they and they get it. And when we say, okay, here's Susan with her experience, and here's Roseanne and myself, that we backed, you know, companies from first dollar in to billion dollar plus rounds. We've seen amazing organizations evolve, amazing category defining companies evolve. So when we talk to them, we can bring experiences as investors and as board members, and companies that they view as. Uh, reference or examples to their industries or right so we bring relevant investing experience and that and but we also bring the operating understanding of okay you have i don't know 23 direct reports and that's not sustainable and everybody tells you it's not sustainable but you have no idea how to handle it we can help you kind of think through that or you know you want to hire these functions or you want to create a really scalable customer success organization but you don't know how to playbook we can help you with that so like those are really high leverage, high importance pain point for founders that they kind of go in and like, wow, that matters. I think what you've described is really important in that you've oriented yourselves and your company to the stage of the development of the companies you invest in versus having a level of dogmatism toward we're a series A investor or a seed investor. In the reality, all of those things are complete grayscale and they all meld together anyway. So it really, you know, is a function of where the company is and understanding where you can add the most value given your collective experiences in the platform you're building with the team you're building. I want to shift maybe to one last part of this segment, and that's really around one important component of running a firm, which is fundraising. And I had sent out a survey and I asked, 100 emerging managers, what are your biggest pain points? Number one, two, and three were fundraising. You've been at really, you know, blue chip firms in the past with Lux and Felicis and IVP and Canaan. What would you tell emerging managers that are out there, you know, fundraising during a pandemic? What is the most important thing that you need to think about when launching a fundraise? and even working in an environment where you can't see people. You know, so there are a lot of concepts out there of anchors and people will be really prescriptive to you on like, do this, don't do that, and different roads to many different outcomes. But one thing that I'll, I'll say that is very valuable is actually finding the believers. And a believer is not only the person or the institution that will give you cash, but will also understand your strategy will believe that that strategy is differentiated or value producing and is with you for the long run. Uh, you know, this relationship and alignment between what you expect to do, what you say you're going to do and how you're going to produce returns to LPs, it's a really important one, right? And venture is a long-term asset class. 
results take a while to come back. And really having this understanding, okay, this is why I think, you know, our firm is going to outperform and this is how we want to build the firm and being transparent and having LPs that like get excited by that. That's the best, the best feeling, the best support there is. Uh, The other one is people that understand the asset class. Markets change, opportunities change. It is a long-term hold asset class. So you're not going to see a check for a while. And if an LP doesn't understand that, and all of a sudden, two years from now, three years from now, they're knocking on the door like, where's my cash? It's like, well, there's no cash yet. And they're maybe forcing you to sell or like, you know, actually asking you to change your strategy because they didn't understand that their needs were different than the asset class uh, supports. And there are also some fun strategies that have, you know, a even longer hold period. So, you know, at Lux, for example, right, a year on average, a more capital intensive investments that you're actually, you know, creating science. Uh, so creating a technology and then waiting for the technology to be commercialized and become a business. So getting LPs that understand that is important. And then the other piece too is diversification. And I saw that firsthand as an LP in 2007 in the first financial crisis, where so many venture firms were uh, overweight or, or highly, because in, endowments and foundations are, are perceived to be very long-term, stable, smart investors in the asset class. But when the financial market, uh, the financial crisis kicked in and we saw a big liquidity crunch because the denominator dropped, and those universities and those foundations and hospitals were needing the cash to fund their uh, operations, you saw people kind of back out a bit of the asset class, or it changed a little bit the view or the bullishness on the asset class for some LPs. And that, you know, if you had 80% of your LP base that was just those types of entities, like you were very, you were not diversified. I often forget that you were an LP in the past, Renata, and you've invested in firms you've had you know LPs invest in you you've talked to all type of LPs and one of the things that you both have right now that's unique you have infrastructure that you're creating around you the CFOs of the world a lot of first time managers don't because they just don't have the AUM to be able to hire those things and so you know you become you know chief cook and bottle washer and you have to do LP management Given your experiences in the past, are there best practices of ongoing LP management that ensure that that relationship grows, you're building the right outcomes, and you're creating the right levels of dialogue consistently? What would you tell somebody that's starting off once they close the fund? What does that actually look like in practice? I think the word that you use is so correct. It's a relationship. It's not a transaction. Right. And the earlier you are, the more the LP is backing you. It is personal in a sense. Right. Because the firm is not yet built. The machinery is not yet built. And so this idea of let me delegate these conversations or these relationships to somebody else because I need to go invest. I think that that's a poor strategy. Right. The more they actually get to hear from you, what you're seeing, what you're thinking, what's working, what's not working. Right. Because you're running experiments, you're learning all the time. And the best indication we have of future performance is did you do the things you said you were going to do? Right. And were there, I think actually managing expectations and surprises is a, is an important 
part of the relationship. So communicate often, be transparent. We actually treat our uh, advisory board the same way a company would treat their board. Of, okay, this is how we're thinking about things. Uh, This is where, you know, the challenges or the opportunities across many areas, right? Like you need to be able to have an open relationship and trust because then by the next time you come with the next fundraising or some something happens, good or bad, they already know what to expect and they invest in your judgment, right? So keep them informed, be transparent. And it can be a newsletter, it can be, you know, Zooms, it can be all sorts of things, but water the plant. It's a great call to action to end on. And you know, I'm 100% aligned on LPs putting more money into emerging managers. I'm a big fan. I really appreciate the both of you being on the show. This was a lot of fun. And I really, really appreciate all the support you've shown for us. So thanks again. Thank you. And you've been an amazing partner. That's right. Samir and, and Hannah as well. You guys have really been fantastic. And so we really appreciate all of your help and support. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Renata, Roseanne, and Renegade Partners, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes of the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.